Turn your Bibles. Genesis chapter 50. This is a little bit of a different uh, message. Um, it's more of a theme that is uh, throughout the Scripture, we find throughout the Scripture. And uh, we're going to look at several examples, draw some conclusions from it, and then apply it to our lives, and hopefully it will be beneficial uh, to all of us. Uh, recently, um, I don't know if you know, be familiar with this man, Stephen Crowder. I was listening to uh, one of his podcasts. Um, he puts out a Thursday evening podcast that's free, so I listened to that. And he has a segment at the end of each of his podcasts called Crowder Closes. And I don't know if you guys are familiar, but he's, he's mostly a comedian. He has more of a late-night show kind of uh, a deal. But in this Crowder Closes segment, he takes a, uh, a thought, an idea, and he expounds on it and um, draws some application for it. It's more of a serious, analytical look at different things in his life that, he, that he's struggling with or going through. Um, he professes to be saved, and uh, you know some, some of that... You know, scripture comes out in those uh, Crowder Closes segments. And um, someone can be really good, but there was one particular one that I was listening to two weeks ago where he talked about the idea of growth and pain and how the two are correlated. He talked about a couple of things. Uh, he talks about working out, uh, the fact that unless you exert yourself, put yourself through things that are not necessarily joyful, uh, very difficult, pushing, picking weight up off the ground, pushing weight up. Um, the aftermath is not comfortable. For the next few days, you're walking around like an old man. Uh, but through that trial, that stress, that pain that you put your body through, you grow you get stronger. And there's a real correlation to that. Another thing that comes out of pain and trials is this idea that uh, is, is the idea of gratitude. If you have a steak dinner and you have had breakfast, lunch, and then supper, and you had that steak dinner for supper, there's a certain enjoyment that you're going to get out of it. But if you haven't eaten for two days and you get a steak dinner, it means a whole lot more to you. This, this concept of what pain teaches us and the value of pain in our lives it was very interesting to me. And I thought on it, I meditated on it, and, and just the, the truth of it uh, really struck me. And I was also considering at the same time, Pastor Webb had assigned me this passage, uh, Genesis 50, verses 14 through 21. And with that segment that I listened to on the radio and this passage together, uh, this message came about. And uh, I want us to look at Genesis 50, verses 1 through 14. I'm sorry, 14 through 21. <clears throat> the Bible says, Joseph returned into Egypt. He and his brethren and all that went up with him to bury his father after he had buried his father. And when Joseph's brethren saw that his, 
their father was dead, they said, Joseph will peradventure hate us and will certainly requite us all the evil which we did unto him. And they sent a messenger unto Joseph, saying, Thy father did command before he died, saying, So shall ye say unto Joseph, Forgive, I pray thee, the trespass of thy brethren and their sin, for they did unto thee evil. And now we pray thee, forgive the trespass of thy servants, of the God of thy father. And Joseph wept when they spake this unto him. And his brethren also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we be thy servants. And Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good, to bring about to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. Now therefore, fear ye not, I will nourish you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spake kindly unto them. I want to bring you a message tonight entitled, God Meant It Unto Good. And this is the point that I want us to understand from this message tonight is that God works through trials and circumstances that cause us, can cause us great pain to make us like him, to accomplish his will, and to glorify himself. There's three things I want us to look at briefly, and that is the examples of pain, the examples of trials, excuse me, we're going to look at uh, the time of trials, and then we're going to look at our response to trials, what God expects of us. To begin, I want us to look at and consider this story. And by means of background, let's, let's go back a little ways, and let's go to Genesis 37. We'll start there. We'll kind of trace this story through. I'll try not to get bogged down too much in all the details, but again, I'm trying to do a, an overview of several characters throughout the Old Testament and establish this pattern throughout the Scripture. Genesis 37, verse 1. And Jacob dwelt in the land wherein his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah, which the son, and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought unto their father their evil report. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a coat of many colors. And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, he, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. And Joseph dreamed a dream, and he told his brethren... And they hated him yet the more. And he said unto them, Here I pray you this dream that I have dreamed. For behold, I were, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf arose also and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves stood round about and did obeisance to my sheaf. And his brethren said unto him, Shalt thou indeed reign over us? Or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. And he dreamed yet another dream and told his brethren and said, Behold, I dreamed a dream more. And behold, the sun, moon, and eleven stars made obeisance to me. And he told his father and told his brethren 
And his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee to the earth? And his brothers envied him, but his father observed the saying. His brothers hated him. There was some favoritism that went into this, but understand, was this Joseph's fault? Did he do anything that would merit their hatred? No. And yet they hated him. And understand, these were not, these were not little boys. Okay? A seven-year-old's hatred of somebody versus a 40-year-old man's hatred of somebody are two totally different things. Okay? And we're going we're gonna to see that. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the story, but let's move on. They hated him for, for no good reason, we could say. Verse 18. And when they saw him afar off, so jo- Jacob sends Joseph to go see how his brethren are doing. They're, they're keeping the sheep uh, ways away. And uh, he goes and he's, he's searching after their, his brethren to find them so that he can bring back the report. And it says, when they saw him afar off, even before he came near unto them, they conspired against him to slay him. They hated their brother so much, they wanted to kill him. They wanted to end his life. They were so tired of his dreams. They were so tired of their dad giving him these gifts. They wanted to kill him. That's some pretty serious hatred. That's, that's as far as hatred can go down here. That's the, pretty much the worst thing you can do to somebody. End their life. They said one to another, Behold, the dreamer cometh. Come now, therefore, let us slay him and cast him into some pit. And we will say, Some evil beast hath devoured him. And we will see what will become of his dreams. And Reuben heard it. And he delivered him out of their hands and said, Let us not kill him. Reuben said unto them, Shed no blood, but but cast him into this pit that is in the wilderness, and lay no hand upon him, that he might rid them out of their hands to deliver him to his father again. And it came to pass when Joseph was come unto his brethren that they stripped Joseph of his coat of many colors that was on him. And they took him and cast him into the pit. And the pit was empty and there was no water therein. And they sat down to eat bread and lifted up their eyes and looked. And behold, a company of the Ishmaelites came from Gilead with their camels, bearing spicery and balm and myrrh to carry down to Egypt. And Judah said unto his brethren, What profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let our hand not be upon him, for he is our brother in our flesh. And his brethren were content. Then there passed by Midianites, merchantmen, and they drew and lifted up Joseph out of the pit, and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for twenty pieces of silver. And they brought Joseph into Egypt. And Reuben returned to the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit, and he rent his clothes, and he returned unto his brethren and said, The child is not, and I, whither shall I go? And they took Joseph's coat and killed a kid of the goats and dipped the coat in blood, and they sent the coat of many colors, and they brought it to their fathers, to their father and said, This we have found. Know now whether it be thy son's coat or no. And he knew it, and he said, It is my son's coat. An evil beast hath devoured him. Joseph, without doubt, is rent in pieces. And Jacob rent his clothes 
and put on sackcloth upon his loins and mourned for his sons many days. And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, For I will go down to the grave unto my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Let's make a buck. Let's not kill him. Let's make a buck. Let's, let's sell him. The Bible, doesn't, the Bible gives us what we need to know, but, but play the story through in your mind. He is their brother. They've grown up with him. They, they've known him all of his life. As he's coming up out of the pit, as they're drawing him up out of the pit, he knows they're going to sell him. That he knows what their intent is. What would you do? I'd be crying out. Help, guys, please, I'll do anything. I won't tell you another dream. I'll never speak of these things again, ever. I'll, I'll do anything. I'll, do your, I'll, I'll take care of the sheep. I'll give you time off. I'll do whatever needs to be done, please. He begged his brothers. He wept. He pleaded with them. He used everything that he could think of. Don't do this. Understand, what does it mean to be sold into slavery during this time? I'm sure he had nine to five weekends off and had a great living quarters, great house. No. Okay? You're, you're shackled. Okay? You're shackled. You have the shackles on your feet. You're shackled to the guy behind you. He's shackled to the guy behind him. And you walk like this all the way to Egypt. That's a long trip. How long is it supposed to take? 11 days? Traveling from Egypt to the nation of Israel? How long is it going to take? Like this. You think the, the slave master is really worried about how are your leg hurting? Has the skin worn off of your leg yet? Let's put some antibiotic on that. When he gets down to Egypt, what's his future? How are you doing today? Have, have, we, have we worked you too hard? I know the sun is hot. Here's a sweet tea. He's a slave in Egypt. That's his future. Let's move on. Genesis 42. The betrayal that he would have felt sold by his own brethren. Genesis 42 verses 16 says, uh, this, is, this is after, so they've come down to Egypt. To, to, there's a famine in the land of Canaan. They've come down to Egypt to buy corn. And Jews, Joseph accuses them of being spies. Why did he do that? He wanted to see if they were repentant or not. He wanted to see where they, had they changed. In the previous chapters, there's a couple of things that happens to this family that changes some of the men. Remember Judah? Okay. Judah, the one that came up with the plan, hey, let's not kill him. Let's sell him. Okay. What happened to Judah? Well, he commits whoredom with his daughter-in-law, and he has two sons out of wedlock. Do you want to talk about embarrassing? How would you like to go to that family reunion? Some things humbled. Some things happened in Judah's life that humbled him. You remember Reuben? Reuben, he tried to say, don't, don't kill him, don't kill him. I'm, and, and his point was, his, his goal was to return him to his father again. Okay? 
But did he tell his dad, hey, dad, this isn't real. This isn't right. They're lying. We, they didn't kill him. They sold him. Why? Reuben didn't want to hear dreams again. The middle way was good enough for Reuben. Get rid of Joseph. It's okay if we sell him into slavery. Hard labor. I don't know what the survival rate for slaves was back then, but it wasn't great. He was, he was fine with the middle way. We can, we can abuse him a little bit. It'll be okay. He wanted to see, are these the same brothers that sold me into slavery 30 years ago? Or however long it was ago? He wanted to see. So he accuses them of being spies. He's, he's the second in command over all the nation of Egypt. He can do whatever he wants. He can, you're dead. And he accuses them of being spies. So they're afraid. They're, they're quaking. In verse 16, he says, Send one of you and fetch your brother, and ye shall be kept in prison, that your word, whether there be any truth in you, or else the life of Pharaoh, surely ye are spies. So he tells them to go up, get Benjamin, bring him back, and then I'll believe you. And he put them all together into the ward three days. And Joseph said unto them the third day, This do and live, for I fear God. If ye be true men, let one of your brethren be bound in the house of your prison, and go ye, carry corn for the famine of your houses. But bring your youngest brother unto me, so shall your words be verified, and ye shall not die. And they did so. And they said one to another, We are verily guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us, and we would not hear. Therefore is this distress come upon us. And Reuben answered them, saying, Spake I not unto you, saying, Do not sin against the child, and you would not hear? Therefore, behold, also his blood is required. And they knew not that Joseph understood them, for he spake unto them by an interpreter, and he turned himself about from them and wept, and returned to them again and communed with them, and took from them Simeon and bound him before their eyes. We saw the anguish of his soul. We didn't care. There's two things going on here. The pain that they feel from the guilt of what they did to their brother is working in their lives. The pain that Joseph felt being betrayed by his brethren, God works all that out. There's two things going on at the same time. Genesis 45 talks about how Joseph was wrongly accused. I must hurry. I don't have time to go through everything in detail. Joseph is wrongly accused of sexual assault by Potiphar's wife. Not a good look, man. He was totally innocent. She was the one that was going after him. He fled and got him out. He did everything right. Everything right. There was nothing wrong that he did. He was so consumed with doing what was right that he didn't say, how can I sin against my master? What he said, how can I sin against God? Here was a man that was trying to do everything right, that was serving God, we would say in our modern vernacular. He was serving God, and yet he's wrongfully accused. What happens to somebody who's wrongfully accused of assaulting the captain of the guard in Egypt. I would not want to be that guy, okay? When I think of a captain of a guard, just play this little mind game with me for a minute. 
When I picture a captain of a guard of the greatest nation on the face of the earth at that time, I do not think of uh, Pippin Le Pew. Okay? This is a big guy. Somebody has sexually assaults your wife. What are you going to do to him? It's very likely that Joseph did not go into jail without a mark on him. It's very unlikely. I bet he got the beating of his life. He didn't do it. It's the opposite. He's in jail. How long? We don't know. It was two years after he interpreted the dream of the butler and the baker. So at least two years. Could have been five. Could have been ten. We don't know. He's in jail for something he didn't do. There's no Eighth Amendment rights. There's no appeals. As far as Joseph knows, he's going to be in this jail for the rest of his life. But what's his attitude? We find out that in no time at all, he is managing the jail system. The jailer trusts him so much that everything, he puts everything, the management... He puts the, the, uh, the food delivery, he puts everything into Joseph's hand. That wouldn't have been me. I'd have been the guy back in the jail. God's just, God's just being, I don't know what God's doing. I'm, I'm trying, and, and my brother sold me into slavery. I, I, I'm, I'm serving this guy, Potiphar. I'm doing everything. I'm taking care of his entire house. He wrongfully accuses me, and here I am. I'm just going to rot in prison the rest of my life. That would have been his attitude. He went through some great pain. He went through some great trials, some great heartache. But what's the conclusion? He gets promoted to be as Pharaoh. Only in the kingdom is Pharaoh greater than him. His brethren, his brethren come down and bow before him, recognizing their guilt. And eventually, in this passage that we just read in, in chapter 50, they finally repent of their sin. They're restored. Forgiveness can happen. Because of this pain and this trial, he saved his entire family. What, what would have happened if his brothers had, brothers had never hated him? What would have happened if his brothers would have never sold him into Egypt? What would have happened when the fourteen year, uh, when the seven year famine came? We don't know. But God had Joseph in that place, ready. Think about how much, how much power Joseph had. What if he had not been through that betrayal? What if he had not been the one that was thrown in jail wrongfully? What, how would his character have been different? Maybe he would have been a tyrant. God used trial and hardship to make Joseph what he was. God used hardship and trial to prepare Joseph for this position of power. And the end result was he was restored to his brethren and his father. He got to see all of them again. They were restored to him, and he was able to take care of them during that time of famine. Let's go to the next character. Let's talk about Ruth. And I'm skipping a bunch. We could talk about Isaac. We could talk about Abraham. Jacob, all these people went through great trials. But I want to talk about a few women. I think a lot of times we go through the, we look at the scripture, we think, oh, just 
the men are important. There's some, there's some really important women throughout the scripture. Okay? There's two kinds of people on earth, and God is very interested in both. Okay? Let's look at Ruth. Let's just consider this. I don't have time to actually look at the details. But you know the story, so I feel like I can move through it. The story was that there was a famine in Bethlehem. A man named Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their two sons, Malon and Chilion, they go to Moab. Okay? They were living in the promised land. They were living in Bethlehem. It was not God's will for them to go to Moab. Okay? Similar to Abraham, he decides to go to Egypt when God says this is the land for you. So they, they step outside the will of God, and they go to this place called Moab, and his sons marry two Moabite women. Not what they should have done. Okay? Why? They shouldn't have been there. So here you have some sinning Israelites, God's people that are out of the will of God in Moab. That was the people that, jo- that Ruth got to learn about God from. Those were her witness. Those people were her testimony. What happens to Ruth? Her husband. I don't know how long they were married. Her husband dies. Naomi's other son he dies. Naomi's husband dies. So you got three women left without, without men. Okay? During that time, during the, it's different than now. Okay? Now, women, woman by herself, she can go out in the marketplace and, and make a living. Okay? Back then, mm, okay? different society. So these women are left bereft. Okay? That's why in the Old Testament, God instituted that if, if a man dies and he leaves a widow, the man's brother is to come up behind and take her to be his wife and he is to provide for her or in, in any children that she has. If he's already married, they find the next of kin, okay? And he's to marry her and to take care of her. If you were a widow during this time, you didn't have surety of where your next meal is coming from. Okay, this is a very precarious situation during this time. Uh... Male protection was very important. There were not necessarily great men that, um, everywhere. Okay? These were not men that feared God. Okay? They were really put into, into a hard place, in, into a difficult place. She stayed with her mother-in-law. She decided to stay with her mother-in-law and take care of her when her other sister-in-law decided to go back. This meant certain poverty, and this meant that she had no guarantee of survival. What, do women, what, do, what is something that women stereotypically crave? Security. She could have gone back to Moab and married another guy. It would have been a much clearer path forward for her to provide for her needs. But she said, no, Naomi, she's in a bad place. She's old. She's not going to be able to work as hard as I can. I need to help her. I need to provide for her. She goes with Naomi back to this strange country where she doesn't know anybody. But she determines that your God will be my God. Your people shall be my people. I'm not going to leave you. Her situation looked bleak when she went back. But what was the conclusion of all her trials that she went through? What was the conclusion of all that? The Lord provided for her provision. 
She goes into the field, and this man named Boaz, he sees her. And he tells the gleaner, she said, leave a little bit of handfuls on purpose for her. God provides for her. Her faith in the Lord God was validated. She realized that there was something to this, the God of Israel. She became the wife of one of the most godly and wealthy men of that day, Boaz. What was Boaz's character? We see him coming in to work in the morning, and he greets his men. He said, the blessing of the Lord be upon thee, and they, and they return back. God bless you. That was the common practice of Boaz. What a godly man. He, is the next, he wasn't the next of kin. Okay? He was once removed. Okay? So he wasn't, he wasn't the one that was supposed to marry Ruth. There was another guy in between. But guess what? That guy had other responsibilities. He couldn't. God knew all of that. He worked all this out. And it would have never happened if it weren't for the trials that Ruth went through would have never come to pass. Look at 1 Samuel. Chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 to 18. Let's look at our next character, Hannah. And there was a certain man of, I'm not going to try that name, of Mount Ephraim. And his name was Elkanah, the son of Jer, uh, Jeroam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. And he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. And this man went up out of this, his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And, he, and the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And when the time uh, was that Elkanah offered, he gave to Penina his wife and to all her sons and her daughters portions. But unto Hannah he gave a worthy portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had shut up her womb. And her adversary also provoked her sore, for to make her to fret, because the Lord had shut up her womb as he did so year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord, so she provoked her. Therefore she wept, did not eat. Then said Elkanah her husband to her, Hannah, why weepest thou? Why eatest thou not? And why is thy heart grieved? Am I not better to thee than ten sons? So Hannah arose after they had eaten in Shiloh and after they had drunk. Now Eli the priest sat by upon a seat by a post of the temple of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look upon the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me and not forget thine handmaid, but wilt give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life. And there shall no razor him upon his head. And it came to pass as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli marked her mouth. Now Hannah, she spake in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she had been drunken. And Eli said unto her, How long wilt thou be drunken? Put away thy wine from thee. And Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, 
I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Count not thine handmaid for a daughter of Belial, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief have I spoken hitherto. And Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and God of Israel grant, thy, grant thee thy petition which thou hast asked of him. And she said, Let thine handmaid find grace in thy sight. So the woman went her way and did eat, and her countenance was no more sad. Let's get the picture. During this time, and for the centuries following it, the most important thing to women in society was for them to have children. You don't, you don't find them being CEOs. There was no equal pay for equal work. Okay? In this society, women's role was to have children and raise the next generation. Okay? That is extremely important, by the way. Um, there, there have been many studies that show that the, the happiness index of, of women that just work versus women that stay at home and shape the next generation, it's not even close. The women that stay home and, and raise the next, next generation are most important, but anyway, or most happy. But that aside, during this time, that was what was expected. Okay? The, the women would even look down on other women that could not have children. In the scripture here, we see that Penina was, was her adversary, and she provoked her. She, she taunted her. Oh, I have children. I'm more important to our husband. Yeah, that, that's another mess, by the way. Two wives. Okay? That, that worked out great for Jacob. Um, but um, she, she provoked her um, uh, year after year. And uh, so much so that it, it was uh, Hannah wept, and, and she, was, she was grieved about it. Even, even more so because of the constant taunting about it. This, you got to understand, in this society, how important this was. Um, how many of you guys are familiar with Henry VII, or Henry VIII? What was the guy that left the, the, the king, the, the Catholic Church? Eighth? Henry VIII. Okay, so Henry VIII, he had over four wives. Okay, why? Okay, he had the first wife. She didn't have any children. Divorce. Okay, had a second wife. She didn't have any children. Divorce. Third wife, she had a daughter, not a son. Divorce. Okay? Very important in this society. Okay? You gotta understand their mindset. This was this was this was so grievous to Hannah that she did not have a son. She did not have children. This is where she found her meaning. This is where she found her purpose. And this is this was a this was a symbol of of God's favor. For the people of the nation of Israel during that time, so they have children. If you didn't have children, everybody was going around kind of like the blind man during Jesus' time. Who sinned? Who's doing wrong here that you don't have children? What What did you do against God? Okay, these things are are eating at her in her mind, and she pours out her soul before the Lord. She's weeping in agony so much so that Eli's like, "There's something wrong with this woman. She's drunk." All right. This is not normal. She's over here just weeping and pouring out her soul like this. This is not normal. This is a great trial for her. But what happened? She called out to the Lord and God heard her prayer. And what was the conclusion? 
What would have happened if, if she would have just had children like every other woman during that time and she, she didn't have that experience of calling out and praying to the Lord and begging God, please? How did that change her? Definitely made her more thankful than Penina was for her children. It definitely made her value her children more than any other who didn't have to pray and beg God. It made her faith more real when she saw her prayer answered. It changed her. And perhaps most importantly, what came out of this was she gave Samuel to the Lord. Did God use Samuel a little bit? Oh, yeah. The last great judge of Israel. The judge who called out Saul's sin. The judge who went to Saul and, and was dealing with Saul and trying to get him to repent and see that he needed to obey the Lord and follow the Lord. Samuel, the one that went and hewed Agag into pieces. The one who... who Gave himself to the Lord wholeheartedly. He was a great prophet. Would that have happened if Hannah just would have had Samuel without this experience? No. God greatly used trials in Hannah's life. We could talk about David. He had some great trials. A lot of them he brought upon himself. But the, 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 the most compelling one would have been Saul trying to chase him down. When David had all, nothing but good intentions for Saul. And he tried to kill David many times. Hunted him all over the wilderness. How would you like to be drag your wife all throughout the wilderness running for Saul? Oh, are we going to be here for a while? Here, let, let's set up a camp. Let's make ourselves comfortable. Oh, I saw Saul over the next ridge. We got to go. Think that would be hard? Yeah. How about how would you like to come back to Ziklag and see all your wife, your wives, and your and your children were all carried off? What did it say? And that David had to encourage himself in the Lord his God. He went through some trials. Do you think that changed him? Oh, you bet it did. Let's look at two more. Let's look at the Apostle Paul. Let's go to the New Testament. We could talk about Daniel. He went through some big ones. But let's look at the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians 11. I know it's a lot of turning and I apologize, but we're just trying to establish this throughout the scripture. Pretty much you can name a, a person that God mentions and a story that he tells about them and you can see how God used difficulties in their lives. Paul, let's look at him. In, first, in 2 Corinthians 11, he goes through a whole list of things that happened to him. Why? Because he was preaching the gospel and he was planting churches. He was, I'll just read a couple of them off here. Of the Jews, five times received I 40 stripes, save one, 39 lashes, okay? 41 is considered you're dead, okay? Five times. Thrice I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. 
A night and the day have I been in the deep. Okay, what's he talking about the deep? The ocean. A night and a day, just floating around. I'm glad they didn't have jaws back then. Okay, what, what terror of mind anytime the shark comes up. Okay, but a night and a day in the deep. In journeys off, in perils of the waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by my own countrymen. They were chasing him from town to town. He'd go in and preach the gospel, and they'd either run him out or beat him and then throw him out. Or throw him in jail or throw him in the stocks. Paul was one that went through a lot of difficulty and a lot of trial. The scripture records for us that uh, Paul's speech was contemptible. Um, the pastor has mentioned several times that history tells us that he was ugly. He was small, not an impressive man. These would be trials for a man like Paul, a man that would have a very public ministry, one that would have to communicate the oracles of God. Somebody that wrote more epistles of the New Testament, penned more of the New Testament than any other, planted more churches than any other. And yet he's a short, ugly guy. Chapter 12, verses 6 through 10. For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool. For I will say the truth, but now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me. And lest I should be exalted above measure, through the abundance of revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, and persecutions, and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. <laughs> he was directly, this is, this is the clearest trial and conclusion that we see in the, in the scripture. God specifically gave him this thorn in the flesh so that he wouldn't be lifted up in pride. Paul was a brilliant man. Read his, read his, his writing. It's very logical, like a lawyer making a case. But he was ugly. His speech was contemptible, and he had a thorn in the flesh. Why? So he wouldn't be proud. <laughs> Paul was poor. Why? Romans 7, 7 says, I had not known sin. This is Paul writing. I had not known sin except the loss of Thou shalt not covet. Paul had a problem with the love of money. So God put him in this ministry of traveling all over Asia and Europe and the Middle East, planting churches and keeping him poor. Why? So that he wouldn't be covetous.
God used trials in his life. But what was the conclusion of it? The Lord was greatly glorified because of his ministry. The churches of Corinth, Galatia, Ephesus, Colossae, Thessalonica, Philippi, lest I go on, would not have been started except for the ministry of the Apostle Paul. His pride was kept in check and his covetousness was kept in check all because God allowed these things in his life. He asked God thrice, Lord, why did you make me so ugly? Why did you make me so short? Why did you give me this thorn in the flesh? Three times he calls out to God, why? My grace is sufficient for thee. And what was his attitude? Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities. The power of Christ may rest upon me. What a testimony. And the last example I want us to look at is, is Jesus. And I don't have time to get through all of this. But uh, this is recorded um, throughout all the Gospels. Well, I did not watch the time. This is recorded throughout the Gospels about when Jesus, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's, it's his final hour. And in every gospel, it's recorded that he, he goes and prays alone. He asks his disciples, his friends, the ones that he is closest to, the ones that he spent the last three and a half years with every day, he asks them, please just watch and pray, lest you fall into temptation. And he went and, and prayed alone. And we find what's recorded is a prayer of anguish, a last-ditch effort, you might say, if there be any other way to redeem the sin of mankind, to redeem mankind, to, to provide a way for him to repent and be saved and to, and to do away with their sin, if they repent, if there be any other way to provide that, can this cup pass from me? <laughs> this is God in flesh. At the last hour, he's in anguish of spirit. Why? Because he knows what's going to come. And yet he calls out, if there be any way. He went, we, we know the crucifixion story. He was illegally convicted. He was disparagingly, disparagingly mocked on the cross and brutally executed. And yet he opened not his mouth. Isaiah 53 gives a very uh, descriptive uh, account of that. Second Peter two nineteen to twenty five says, "For this is thankworthy, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it when ye be buffeted for your faults? Ye shall take it patiently. But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable unto God. For even hereunto are ye, were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving for us an example." that we should follow in his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were a sheep going astray, 
but are now returned to the shepherd and bishop of your souls. He was forsaken by the Father there in, in Matthew 27. All the, script, all the Gospels record this as well. His suffering pleased the Father, Isaiah 53. It pleased the Lord to bruise Him. God in human flesh, beaten and crucified for us. What was the conclusion of that? Why did He do it? He was glorified. He was greatly exalted. He was lifted up. The Son of Man be lifted up. I will draw all men unto me, He says. Even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of the servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in the earth and things under the earth, that at every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He was highly exalted, and he provided the salvation of all mankind. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He did, it, he did that. And that was the vision of his trial. None of that was possible without the cross. What's our view of trials? You know, we look at the people in the scripture and we can, we can see the, the whole story. God lays out the whole story for us. And we get to see the trials they went through, what it affected it had in their lives, and what God accomplished because of it. But our view is different. We don't get to see the whole story of our story. We get to see here and now. All we get to see is one day at a time. What's that mean? When we're going through a difficulty in a trial, we don't know how it's going to work out. We don't get to see, oh, in five years, God is going to enable me to do this. God is going to use me to do this. I'm going to be able to serve this way in the church because of the lessons I learned in this trial. We don't get to see it. We get to see now. And I must skip through all this. Our view is now. But the good news is, God's view of our trials, He understands. He knows all of this. Um... God's view of our trials is he knows all things. There's nothing hid from his sight. He's omniscient. I'm not going to look at scripture for that, but we all know that. He is omniscient. He knows what we're going through. Um, he knows what's best for us. He desires to give us good things. And you can write these down and look these up later. Matthew uh, 7, 11. Psalm 84, 11. He is working in us to do his will. He's, he's working in us to, to, to produce the fruits of the Spirit. So, Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God that worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. I find that many times I get in this idea, I get this idea in my head that 
The purpose of my life is to have fun. It's to be happy. We get to live in that fantasy here in America because we have it so good. We have great systems in place. We have a great judicial system. We have the greatest form of government. It's still horrible, but we have the greatest form of government never known to man. We get to live in this little fantasy bubble for a little time. But what's the reality? The reality is God is trying to work in us his will. It's not about me. It's not about am I happy? Am I feeling good right now? It's not about that. It's about working his will. And so many times I get bogged down in that and I think, God, why are you allowing this to happen to me? I'm not happy. It's not about that. He's working his will. He knows our frame. Uh, Psalm 103. I can't turn to it. Please, please look this up later. It it will really encourage you. Psalm 103. He knows our frame. I got to hold on. Let me get over there. I got to read this one verse for you. Psalm 103. For he hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. This is verse 10. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. Verse 14, for he knoweth our frame, and he remembereth that we are dust. As for man, his days are as grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourisheth. For the wind passeth over it, and it is gone, and the place thereof shall know it no more. God knows that we live in time. God knows that we only get to see now. We don't get to see what he's working in 10 years. And so what's his answer to that? Mercy. He pitieth us as his children. He knows our frame. What what does that mean? He knows what we can handle. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, There is no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. <laughs> He's not going to allow something in your life that's going to make you just break. You're his child. He wants what's best for you. He knows your frame, and he keeps our souls. Uh, John 10 talks about how that fear not them that can destroy the body, but fear him that can uh, send to hell. John 10 talks about, I'm sorry, that's a different passage. John 10 talks about how that my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and neither can any man pluck them out of my Father's hand. He holds us in, our hand, in his hand. Nothing, nothing is going to take him by surprise. He keeps our souls. So what's, what's the result of all this? What do we need to do? There's four things. It needs to be our response. Look to Jesus as our example. Hebrews 12, 2 and 3. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him... 
that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. Lest ye be weary and faint in your minds. God without sin becomes a man and dies for the, all the sin of mankind. So that if any man repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, he can be saved. Look unto Jesus as our example for how he endured the greatest trial of the cross. Commit the keeping of our souls to the Creator. 1 Peter 4, 19. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to Him in well-doing as unto a faithful Creator. No matter, no matter what man does to us, no matter what they say against us, if we're doing what God has for us, if we're doing His will, if we're in His Word, if we're abiding in His love, it doesn't matter. You can, you can, you can fire me. You can, you can torture me. It doesn't matter. I'm, I'm kept by the Lord. I keep, he keeps my soul. That's the right perspective to have. Number three, when we feel discouraged, take a look through God's lens, God's view, and recognize that He will work in us to accomplish His will. When we're going through the trial, or when we're going through the difficulty, know that He's working for our good, for His glory, for down the road. And number four, know that God meant it unto good. Commit ourselves to be faithful to Him day after day after day day. Brother Custer talked about the fact that Christian life is not these grand and glorious fireworks celebration things and exciting woo! A lot of times it's just doing right. Reading your Bible. Praying. Being a witness. Enduring temptation. (laughs) I know we'd like sometimes to put the gloves on and just I just want to beat something, and I'll, I'll feel better. Just endure the trial. Be faithful. God is doing a work, if we'll let him. We talked about the examples of those that responded rightly, that saw that God was working. There's plenty of other examples in the Scripture when God put them through trials and difficulties, and they responded wrongly. Which way are we going to go? This isn't as up to us.